Well, if you'd like to open up your Bibles to John 2, 1 through 11, we're continually moving through the Gospel of John, and we've made it past chapter 1, so hallelujah, praise the Lord. It almost took me just about a year, so... Um, and I want to apologize to the two people who already listened to this sermon because they came to Desert Sky Baptist Church. So uh, the rest of you, it's all the first time, but the other, thank you for coming again. <laughs> um, but if you want to stand for the reading of the king, I'd like to follow my example and my pastor and stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Beginning in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, his mothers and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you what it reveals to us. I thank you that it reorients our dark and sinful desires to the light and to the truth. And God, I pray that you would shine light upon us this evening, that your Holy Spirit would be pleased to imbue us with a deep, deep sense of who you are and what you have done for us. And Lord, if there is anything that is in us that is still impure, melt us to the core and skim the dross off of the top that you may look in us and see yourself. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Jesus Christ came down to reveal the mysteries of God. He has chosen to be the one to come and explain the Father to the world. It is written in Colossians 2-3 that all the hidden treasures of wisdom and godliness are hidden in him. For Jesus to make his first public miracle to occur at a wedding bears massive weight for us as his children. It is not mere happenstance that the Lord should do his first miraculous work at a wedding. From beginning to end, the Lord Jesus Christ did as the Father ordained. When we come to a text like this, we cannot have the opinion that the Lord Jesus found himself at a wedding and because there was a chance circumstance for himself to demonstrate his power and glory, he thought, sure, why not a wedding? It's as good as a place as any to be, begin doing the miraculous. Our Lord was not flippant or haphazard. Jesus began his miraculous public ministry by the divine, sovereign plan of God. The question for the serious student of the Bible is why? Why did Jesus choose a wedding as the launching point for his ministry? We as human beings can become dull to the, the 
spiritual significance of regular and common occurrences. I can testify to this. I worked up in the valley for two years, and every day I would wake up before the sun arose and get in my car and drive to work. And I remember those first few weeks for driving while the sun rose, it was beautiful. And I just thanked the Lord for the sunrise because I hadn't driven when the sun rose. And so for those first few weeks, I just went, Lord, thank you so much for the sun rising. And after that, about two weeks after that, I just started thinking about work on the way to work. I was already in the mode of work, and I dropped the thank you, Lord, for the beautiful sunrise and started worrying about the day. It is so easy for us to shift our focus from Thank you, Lord, for this normal, regular, common occurrence to all of the problems that are going to face us in the day. You know, I think far more often than not, if you talk to a married person about their marriage, it is not heartfelt gratitude for their partner or even thankfulness for God's wisdom in creating marriage. Instead, even on the tongue of believers, you may hear a slew of complaints, a long list of difficulties that has plagued their marriage, or even more devastatingly, a slanderous maligning of who they promised to commit to have and to hold and to cherish. The first human institution that God created was marriage, and he called it good. In order of first importance for humans, marriage is at the very tippy top. God created it first, and Jesus Christ gave sanction to it as the first act in his public ministry. If it was the purpose of Jesus Christ to reveal the Father, and the way he begins doing this is at a wedding, we as believers ought to have an exceedingly high esteem for marriage. Marriage is the means that God chose to continue his work through man before the fall in Genesis 1.28. After he creates man in his image, he says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God created man and woman together and he gave them a purpose. And that purpose was to be fruitful and multiply in the context of marriage. The only thing that God said that was not good in Genesis prior to the fall is man's isolation and him not having a suitable helper for him. Although no sickness and disease had existed, no mental illness was possible, no brokenness because the fall had not yet happened, it was still not good that man was alone. Man left to their own devices aren't good at making life beautiful. I don't know if any of you know any single men, but if you do, and you look at their lives, unless they have a seriously strong relationship with the Lord, you can immediately tell that there is some lack. They lack purpose, they lack forethought, they lack passion, sometimes they even lack the ability to think. God gave Eve to Adam because even though he had the capacity to name every animal on the face of the earth and had an amazing capacity to organize and conceptualize He lacked the grace of life, as 1 Peter 3.7 calls marriage. Man without marriage is the equivalent of Christ without a church, incomplete. And before you say that Christ wasn't incomplete without his church, let me just point you to Ephesians 1.23, which calls his church his body. And I don't know about you, if you were a head without a body, you'd feel pretty incomplete too. We're not going into theology proper, it's just his purpose. 
Anytime you read this passage in the Gospel of John, if you're a married person, you need to take some time to think, take, take some time to thank the Lord for his blessed provision. Men, if you didn't have a wife, you probably would have eaten a lot more cold canned beans in your life. <laughs> Women, if you didn't have a husband, you'd probably be taking the bus a lot more because you wouldn't have someone to fix your car. God made man to love one another because he is love. And marriage is the institution he has first and doubly blessed. Marriage is the greatest common grace that is accessible by man. Any society that honors and values the sacredness of the marriage union thrives and receives the greatest temporal blessings that the Lord is inclined to bless man with. Any society that neglects marriage and dishonors the union that the Lord Jesus Christ says of whatever God has unified, let no man tear asunder, inevitably falls into abject moral decay and economic disaster. The marriage between men and women is the means that God uses to uphold and preserve society. That's why in Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul likens the relationship that Christ has with his church as the same relationship that a husband has with his wife. The God of the Bible is a God who is supremely pleased with unifying two separate and unique, distinct parties into one harmonious and joyful union. And I just want to add a caveat here for the singles, whether you're a single individual who has not been married yet or someone who is a widow. Um, I myself am a single man and know that uh, I don't think our church does, but many churches have a problem in valuing their single members rightly. Um, so I'm speaking to the singles. Uh, you are not loved less by God because you are single. If God has chosen to have you single in life, whether for just a season or the totality of your life, you are not lesser. I would say during this time, God has called you to a commitment to himself and, and his church that ought to rival a married couple's union to one another. Singleness for the Christian is not a season of indifference and irresponsibility because you aren't beholden to a spouse. This is a season for you to kick it into high gear for the Lord. Listen here to the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, 6 through 9. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as myself, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. The Apostle is not here saying that singleness in general is better, better than marriage. What he's saying is if you can be like me, be single. Paul was not merely a single person. He was a man that used his singleness as a gift to be about the work of God. He could go to prison for Jesus Christ. Married people have a lot more apprehensions about that. He could be tortured for Jesus Christ. He could be reviled for Jesus Christ. Travel interminably for Jesus Christ. Teach and preach daily for Jesus Christ. Because at the end of his day, he didn't have a wife and children to come home to and provide for. Singleness, if you can use it as a blessing to do more for the sake of the kingdom of God, is a good thing. However, if your singleness leads you to complacency, laziness, recklessness, stupidity, and all the other things of that kind, brothers and sisters, go find a spouse. We all ought to value marriage in the same way that Jesus Christ valued marriage, as a matter of first priority. If you are married, value your marriage as one of the richest worldly blessings that God has given you. 
Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives also submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. All of us, whether we are single or married, ought to value and defend the institution of marriage as ordained by God. And that means not only in the specifics of our own relationships, but in the abstract idea of marriage as ordained by God. That means we speak out against fornication. We speak out against adultery. We speak out against homosexuality. We speak out against transgenderism. We speak out against all forms of impurity and including the casual portrayal of anti-marriage immorality on the television and the internet. If God has deigned to call marriage the marriage bed and only the marriage bed as undefiled, any and all other representations in media ought to be rejected as repugnant and filthy. If you can't stop watching television shows that casually portray these things, unplug your television and throw it away. So many of us pray to be conformed into the image of Christ. We pray daily that we should be sanctified and live a holy life, and we don't prioritize the same things in our life as Jesus Christ is demonstrating to us here in this text. Jesus loves holy matrimony and has given a very specific definition of it. Let's follow Jesus' footsteps and honor it as much as he does. So let's continue on in the text now that we've established the importance of this event to Jesus Christ. And an important note for us, as it relates to our relationships, is the contrast between John the Baptist and Jesus. The Gospel of John opens up with the testimony of John the Baptist. As I'm sure many of you know, John the Baptist is John's cousin, and he's a bit of an oddball. Eats bugs and bugs byproducts. He is a prophet of God calling people to repent, and he's doing it in a very unique way. He lives in the wilderness, he wears camel's fur, and again, he eats bugs. John the Baptist demonstrated a very strict and disciplinary lifestyle. And here we see in this text, Jesus going to a party. Now, if you think it's a little bit irresponsible to say that Jesus went to a party, I just want to say that the stone jars don't lie. And the people at the wedding were drinking. They were drinking to excess, too. They got through those stone jars pretty quickly. And uh, I think that uh, if, even if you subscribe, subscribe to John MacArthur's idea of that sort of wine, where it isn't really that alcoholic, I'm sure that there's probably someone who snuck something in. That's how parties go, you know. Um, the people at the wedding were drinking. They were drinking. If you don't know, ancient Israelite weddings lasted approximately seven days, and they were massive feasts. These were not environments where people were prone to exercise strict self-control. These were festivities where people let loose. The Bible explains why Jesus was comfortable in and amongst, amongst festivities where sinners were sinning. Matthew eleven eighteen through 19 says, John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a, wine, a, glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Jesus was teaching us that the kingdom of God is much broader than we as humans are prone to expect. Religious people, yes, us religious people, are very apt to judge people who don't fit within our expectations. John was too extreme in his approach to God, and he was accused of being possessed by a demon. 
Jesus was too lax in his approach with sinners, and all of a sudden he's guilty by association. Jesus speaks of the generation of Jews he visited in, in the preceding verses of Matthew 11 in verses 16 and 17 and says of them, But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Far too many religious people... Even Christians aren't concerned with the truth of God going into any and every environment for the sake of the kingdom. What many of us are far more concerned with is people respecting us and doing what we tell them to do. Jesus and John were no respecter of persons, and it got John beheaded, and it got Jesus crucified. You know what they accomplished because of that? The kingdom of God was expanded so far to include you and I. If they didn't do that and exist outside of the parameters of what the religious people of his day expected them to do, we would still be dead in our sins and trespasses today. Thank God they defied the religious elite. If the Jews of their day had their way, we would be lost. <clears throat> the gospel is not bound by our expectations, and the kingdom of God is not limited to what either you or I think. Jesus bodily went to that wedding in Cana, but you know what is equally true? God is omnipresent. That means every wedding there ever was, no matter how drunk the people were, Jesus was there. Jesus has been in every single bar there has ever been. Jesus has been in every single dark alley, no matter how seedy. Jesus has been in every single drug house, every single brothel, every single prison, every single terrorist compound, every single place that you and I would never expect Jesus to be. And Jesus has not only been there, but is there right now. Because he is omnipresent. He is everywhere at all times. God and Jesus Christ has opened a door for every single one of you in this room today. Revelations 3.8 says that Jesus Christ has the key of David. He opens doors that no one can shut and, and he opens them permanently. Jesus went to this wedding to demonstrate to you that there is a wide open door for you to walk through. To go and share the kingdom of the gospel of God. Jesus wants you to bring the gospel everywhere you go. He wants you to bring it to your work. He wants you to bring it to the store. He wants you to bring it to the streets. Even if you get shot in the head, he wants you to bring it to the streets. He wants you to bring it to your homes. He wants you to bring it to the bars. He wants it everywhere. The kingdom of God is not limited to these four walls. Go out there and preach the gospel. The Christian prerogative is the same as Jesus Christ's in the text. Go forth. And share the good news. What does Jesus Christ say when Mary tells him the wine ran out? Moving on in the text. What does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. At this wedding, at the beginning of his public ministry, Jesus had one singular aim. His own crucifixion. The phrase that Jesus says to Mary is an elliptical phrase and is literally translated, What is it between me and you? Mary had one thing in mind when she brought the wine up to Jesus, and Jesus had something else entirely. Mind you, this wedding is right on the heels of his temptation in the wilderness. Jesus is likely in full warrior mindset as he's sitting in the midst of this celebration. I'm sure he was, he was joy, joyful to be there as the perfect demonstration of the Spirit, but he was not in the frame of mind to be the fixer of everybody's trivial problems. 
Just as a soldier in the trenches isn't concerned with the frosting decorations on a birthday cake, Jesus Christ was not in the mindset of making sure everyone got enough wine. His mind was set on the highest purpose, and that was maintaining his own righteousness and getting to the cross. Yet look at how gracious our God is. Instead of completely rejecting Mary's plea, although he does give her a slight rebuke because her perspective is off, he uses it to demonstrate his glory. What does he do? First, we have to recognize the symbolic nature of what Jesus did with his first miracle. There are six stone jars. Six is the number of, a man, of man in the Bible, as Revelation 13, 18 teaches. These cisterns were filled to the brim with water, as he commanded. God is not a God who wants you to think that there's any probability that somehow he had them mix water and wine together. And so it looked like water at one point, and the servants eventually came in and poured wine in. No, everybody saw that it was water to the top, so the moment that it was pulled out and poured out as wine, there was no confusion or no ability to say this wasn't a miracle. The... And these water stone jars are for what? The purification rites of the Jews. If you spend any time in the New Testament at all, you know that the Jews were obsessed with external religious rites. In a celebration that lasts multiple days, you can assume these Jews washing frequently in these cisterns. Although nowhere in the Bible does God command his people to be in the business of mere external washings, the Jews in their unbelief had replaced the true and genuine religion of faith in God with the systems of rites and rituals they used to replace him. Listen to what Luke writes in Luke 11, 37 through 41. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisee cleanse the outside of the cup, of the dish, and inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also, but give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. The Lord Jesus was so displeased with those who were so supposedly meant to be living in his commands that he uses his first miracle as an opportunity to demonstrate what he thought of their dead ritual washings. He would rather transform wine or water into wine for a crowd that likely already had drunks in it than give even an inch to the hypocritical Jews of his day. He would rather take from those who ought to know better and refuse to obey than deprive those who do not know and seek to live in the joy and gift of life. Wine is also representative of two things in the Bible, gladness and judgment. Psalm 104.15 says that wine gladdens the heart of man. And Isaiah 63.3 says, I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. In one act, Jesus demonstrates that he is bringing joy to the nations because he is bringing salvation to the whole world and it's extending far beyond the reaches of the Jewish nation. And at the same time, he is declaring judgment against the children of Israel for their hypocrisy and disobedience. Jesus wants a people who obey him from the heart with an attitude and disposition that is changed from the inside out who are so to speak drunk 
on the Holy Spirit, not the vain and dead self-righteousness of self-imposed religion. So friends, you must ask yourself, how do you treat your religion? Do you use your religion to convince yourself and others that you are better than you actually are? Or do you come to Christ because you know your own sinfulness and you know that without a shadow of a doubt that you need God to change your sinful heart? You can have a 100% track record of attendance at church. You can be the best tither that the church ever had. You can be known as someone for their eloquent prayers. You can fast daily and deprive yourself. You can be someone who has never seen a sinful scene on the television or listened to any kind of secular music. You can be an upstanding member of a very reformed church. And, And you can be known for the time you take to help the poor and needy. And you can be the most passionate and zealous singer in the congregation. You can live practically a perfect life in the eyes of men and you can still be absolutely lost. Turn to Christ today. Be born again. I love the way the Belgic Confession puts it when it says, We believe that our salvation consists in the remission of our sins for Jesus Christ's sake, and that therein our righteousness before God is implied, as David and Paul teach us, declaring this to be the happiness of men, that God imputes righteousness to him without works. And the same apostle saith that we are justified freely by his grace, although the redemption which is in Jesus Christ, and therefore we always hold fast this foundation, ascribing all the glory to God, humbling ourselves before him, and acknowledging ourselves to be such as we really are, without presuming to trust in anything in ourselves, or in any merit of ours, relying and resting upon the obedience of Christ crucified alone, which becomes ours when we believe in him. This is sufficient to cover our iniquities and to give us confidence in approaching to God, freeing the conscience of fear, terror, and dread, without following the example of our first father Adam, who trembling attempted to cover himself with fig leaves. And verily, if we should appear before God relying on ourselves or any other creature, though ever so little, we should alas be consumed. And therefore, every one must pray with David, O Lord, enter not into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight no living man will be justified. There is no answer for our sinful self-righteous attitudes other than the precious blood of Jesus Christ. When was... When was it when Jesus Christ brought this transformation at the wedding? It was when the wine was gone. It was gone. It was empty. There's no more wine. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is only when we come to the end of ourselves that our hearts are prepared to be filled up by the Lord. As long as you keep trying to satisfy yourself with whatever this world and your flesh have convinced you is enough to satisfy your soul, there is no place for you in the kingdom of heaven. You are, as of right now, reprobate if you turn to anything other than Jesus Christ. Satan is in the business of convincing you that you must have the best first, and then later you will have the worst. God is in the best of saving, God is in the business of saving the best. Last, it is darkness and then light. What does the text say in verses 10 and 11? The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. 
but you have kept the good wine until now. Our satanic culture is constantly trying to convince us that we need the best first. Our secular neighbors believe that you must sleep with every person you date before you marry. Or they believe in the pleasure of that kind of intimacy apart from a marriage relationship through looking at images online. Our religious culture tells us that if you look like a good person, you are. Jesus says of those kinds of people that they have their reward in this life. And when you stand before God on judgment day, he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Satan wants you to believe that your highest pursuit should be after all the shiny baubles of this life. And he does not discriminate in his, in his perversion of that truth. You must have the same mindset that the Lord Jesus had. You must be on watch against all worldly temptations, even if they come from your own mother or your best friend. Satan is hell-bent on destroying your soul by overburdening you with the cares of this world. Look at how Christ was. He had one purpose, and that purpose was to do the will of his Father by crucifixion. Do you long for that day as the Apostle, did, Apostle Paul did in Philippians 1, 23-24? I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Are you living in the more necessary on your account mindset right now? You need to be living for your brothers and sisters in a very focused way because that's what the Lord has commanded you to do. Do you dream and long for the day when you get to stand with Christ your Savior and hear the words, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Or do you dread the idea? Examine yourselves this day. What absorbs your thoughts? Where do you turn on dark days? Have you been crucified to the world and all of its evil desires? Or is your religion a cloak for a heart that has never been sought, seeking God? You are invited this day by the blessed Holy Spirit to come. Wherever you are, even children, I want you to go to God and Consider your life before him and say, am I trusting in anything at all other than the blood of Jesus Christ for my salvation? You need to ask yourself that today, every day. Not so that you may live without a lack of assurance, but to make sure that you are valuing the blood of Christ properly. Every single thing that you turn to instead of the blood of Christ is an ant instead of a bear. Jesus Christ's blood is supremely valuable, and there is nothing that can compare with it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your blood. I thank you for your crucifixion. Lord, I pray that you would grant this church ever more power by your gospel to kill and destroy every single remaining sin that is within us. May we not rest until we come to you saying, God, anything that I have found that you have told me to kill, I have killed it and removed it from my life. And then may we come to you any time that we sin because we will continue to sin and rest within the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ knowing that you have forgiven us past, present, and future and that our salvation does not rest on our ability to kill any sin in our life, but because of the fact that Christ was killed for us, and that we can actually kill those sins because of the blood of Christ. Lord, I pray that if any of us hold to any hypocritical tendencies, any religious elite tendencies, Lord, 
please, God, remove it from us. May we not be those people who are marked merely by external practice and are inside ravenous wolves. May we please be those who are genuine lights shining in a dark world. May we go into every single place that we ever go and say, this is a place that Jesus Christ has said, this is mine, and I will live in the light of that, and I will not be afraid, because he has promised to be with me always, even unto the end of the age. And if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, how shall he not also freely give us all things, Lord? Whether we're at the grocery store, on the street, at the, ca- at the cash register, um, in our classrooms, um, in our offices, in courthouses, um, Lord, uh, when we're in other people's homes, uh, God, may we recognize that the, the square foot of ground that we stand upon is yours, and may we honor it as such by obeying your word and living in light of the truth of the gospel. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.